In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, there is a lot to talk about. Amongst other things, we're going to talk about how to learn more about edible fungi, time management on trips, how to process the inner bark of oak for tinder, what other bushcraft and nature podcasts might be worth listening to, and if there was only one thing that I'd take with me for survival, what would it be? Welcome, welcome to episode 40 of Ask Paul Kirtley. I'm back in the northeast of England, out for a nice walk. It's definitely feeling autumnal today, and it's a bright and breezy day. And out for a walk this morning, it's nearly lunchtime now, but this afternoon we're gonna be doing some paddling as well. So without further ado, I'm gonna get through these questions, get as much information out to you as possible. Thanks to everyone who's left feedback on the format of the shows, how many questions, how long they should be, how they consume them. And it certainly seems that the consensus is about an hour, five, six, seven, eight questions in that time and keep it as one show per week in one chunk so that people can consume it as and when they want. They can chunk it up into bits. They can listen to it all at once. They can watch it all at once that's absolutely fine. I really, really appreciate you coming back with all of that great feedback and thanks to everyone who watches, thanks to everyone who's been commenting on YouTube and on my blog and sending me private messages as well. So thanks for that. All right, um, the other um, challenge that I left a little while ago was to leave me a question via Instagram, via Instagram video and I said that there would be a little prize for the person who came back first. And the first person who came back was most definitely Craig Taylor. He came back with one question on, on the first day and then and a second question the second day. And then there were a few other questions that came in after that. Not many, but a few. And I will feature those going forwards. But Craig's first question is about fungi forays which is very topical, it's the right time of year. Hi Paul, this is Craig Taylor here, hope you're keeping well. Here's my Ask Paul Kirtley question via an Instagram video. In about a month's time, so the middle of October 2016, I'm going out for half a day with a local branch of the East Sussex Wildlife Trust on a fungi foray. My question to you is, is there anything specific that you think I should be looking to get out of these few hours? Are there any questions that you think I should be asking based upon the fact that I'm coming at this from a, a bushcrafting, foraging type of perspective rather than just being interested in what the different um, fungi looks like and how it behaves and, and what you can obviously eat and can't eat. So I'm looking for you, I guess, and your expertise to help make me get more out of these few hours that, few hours that I'm going to spend on this fungi foray in about a month or so time. Fingers crossed, um, are you able to answer my question and keep up the good work, Paul? Thank you. All right, so good question, Craig. You want to really know how you can extract as much value from that short foray that you're doing. Now, it sounds to me like you don't have a lot of experience with identifying fungi 
um, it's a new area for you, it's one that you're keen to learn about. So first thing I would say is just go and, go and be a good student, go and learn as much as possible, take plenty of notes, that's always good. As much as you think that you're taking stuff in, um, particularly when somebody's throwing a lot of information at you in a relatively short space of time, some of it will stick in your short-term memory, some of it will be maybe processed into longer-term memory, but you're gonna forget a lot of it. So make notes, take photographs. We've talked about using cameras uh, for recording and note-taking quite a lot in the past. Again, this is a good opportunity. Take a little camera, or if you've got something like an iPhone 6 or an up-to-date Samsung phone or similar smartphone with a good little camera on it, you're going to be able to capture some decent photos. Maybe use a note-taking app so that you can write some notes as you go. Then you're going to capture all that information as possible, as much as possible. The, the thing I would say is don't get too worked up about is this one edible, is that one not edible, because you're going to be learning a lot of them in isolation to start off with. They're going to be pointed out to you probably um, fairly randomly um, if it's like most forays that I've ever been on you just got to take it as it comes see what you're going to find even if the person who's leading the foray walked the route several days before it will have changed certain fungi will have appeared others will have have started to decay and die back um, things change very very quickly so they're going to point out what they can see as as you go most likely and just, just go with that. Try and learn as much as possible. If you can try and start to build up some sort of broad framework for uh, families um, of fungi and genus, uh, different genera of fungi, so that you know certain types of fungi have gills, certain types of fungi have pores, certain types of fungi have little um, spikes on the bottom, some have skirts on the stems, some have spots on the top, some have got little dimples on the top. If you can start sort of trying to bring out the overall characters of certain genera or even certain families, so like the Amanitas or the Belitas or um, the uh, Cortinarius or whatever they are, then you can start to build a framework and then within that you can start to place different species. Um, I would just go with an open mind, try and learn as much as possible, write down as much as possible and you're probably going to need to go and do that sort of thing more but it sounds like it'll be a good jumping off point for starting your um, journey um, on learning about fungi and um, we've got another question from you I know by video and we'll play that one in a second but I also had another question on um, learning more about edible fungi from Instagram again and this was from that wandering guy and he asks I would like to learn more about mushrooms preferably the edible ones do you know where I can learn more or do you have a video yourself about the subject well I don't actually have any videos on on fungi I tend not to make live videos so much about tree plant fungi id because it's actually quite hard to capture the critical details with a video camera it's easier to capture the critical details with a, a high quality uh, camera with a macro lens in particular and then you can point out each of those details in turn i write articles in that way i do some screencasts that way in some of my online programs and then each detail can be noted in turn. And we might augment that with some live video, but it's quite hard to capture all the details with live video. I mean, you watch a lot of YouTube videos and you can see that it's quite, it's quite difficult, they're quite blurry, lighting's difficult. So particularly with fungi, 
where those details often are critical, I think you're better off learning from photographs if you're going to learn from any um, media that's removed from actually looking at the fungi. But I wouldn't trust that on its own to learn edible fungi. You really want somebody showing you. You want to go on a, a fungi foray such as the one that, um, that Craig just asked about. You could go on one that's aimed at wild food foraging or you can go at one that's more broadly aimed at fungi ID. You might be able to find a local mycological society that you can join up with or that might just run uh, fungi forays. Um, do it with them. Find somebody who knows what they're talking about that is well um, versed in the fungi. And there are a lot of people who know some fungi. I'm not a fungi expert. I know quite a lot of edible species. I know the deadly poisonous species and the ones that make you ill and in some ways they're the first ones to learn and then you build the edible ones on top of that. There are also some good frameworks that you can stick to that are going to allow you to avoid the most harmful poisonous species while identifying the most uh, tasty edible ones and those are the sorts of things that you want to be learning. But I would suggest try and get in front of somebody that can show you different species in person. Now of course you can learn um, some good background knowledge from, from books and I'll put a few links in the show notes. Um, things like Roger Phillips's Mushrooms, the River Cottage Mushroom book, there's a few others. They're going to give you some good background knowledge but at the end of the day it's like the trees and the plants but even more so. It's a very iterative process. There are thousands and thousands of species of fungi and it will take you a long time to learn more than just a few. Um, you really want to be very careful when it comes to be uh, looking for edible species as well. Don't run before you can walk. Just start, if you don't know anything about fungi, just start to try and identify them. Start, go out, take a field guide, take some photographs, start to identify them. Combine that with maybe doing some guided forays and you will over time start to learn more and more, chip away at it, chip away at it, chip away at it. Fungi tend to be more variable than say learning plants. They can be very small, they can be large, they can be finished and they will take on quite radically different looking forms as they go from very very early stage through to sort of sporing and rotting away and so you really do need to make sure that you're not mistaking say a young stage Amanita for a puffball. Um, there are lots of other examples like that so you really really do just need to learn slowly, gradually, go back, check, go back to the same space on several days. You might see something starting to emerge one day, go back the next day, see how it's developing, go back the next day, see how it's developing. That's the best way to learn is just try and find an area you can go to, have a couple of field guides, learn iteratively, but also get somebody who knows what they're doing to show you in person. It takes time. Okay, next question from Craig, which was another video question from Instagram. Hi Paul, Craig Taylor here. Uh, another Ask Paul Kirtley question for you and once again I'm asking it through Instagram video. My question is around the phrase dead standing wood. What exactly are we talking about? The tree behind me, um, if you look up in the canopy, is a perfectly healthy tree. It's, it's going well, it's doing well. But lower down the tree, such as some of the branches and limbs you can see behind me, completely and utterly dead, or so they appear. 
Would we be doing the tree any harm overall if we were to harvest those apparently dead standing limbs from lower down the tree? Or are we, can we only take wood from a tree that is completely and utterly from top to bottom dead standing? What do, exactly does the phrase mean? It'd be great to hear your answer to this question is I'm sure it would help lots of people understand where they should and shouldn't be harvesting dead standing wood from. Thanks again for all the work you're doing online, Paul. Uh, keep up the good work. So, some clarification on what I mean by dead standing wood. There's a couple of things inherent in that definition. It needs to be dead because green wood doesn't burn very well. And yes, some people will say, oh, you can burn ash green. Yes, you can because the water content is low when it's green compared to some other green woods. But it's still not as good as if it's dry. So the best firewood is always dry. There is no way around that. It wants to be dry to burn well. Any moisture in there is going to reduce the combustibility of that wood. So it wants to be dry. Now, where are you going to find wood that's dry? Most likely, it's not going to be on the forest floor where it's going to be damp. It's going to have had water incident on it. The ground is damp. There is dampness trapped in between that wood and the ground. That's the least good place to be collecting firewood from off the forest floor. You want stuff that's up away from the forest floor where it's not down in that damp. It's not been, um, it, it's, uh, not been maybe subject to as much uh, atmospheric moisture and precipitation and dew and mist and all of those things that can happen um, and cause things to be wet. And the best stuff is the stuff that's had least water incident on it. So yes, you can collect horizontal branches that are dead and um, you can snap them off, you can saw them off. Do make sure they are dead. Do make sure they're dead all the way back to the tree trunk because they're not always, it could just be the tips that are dead. Harder to tell in winter than it is in summer because there's less likely to be foliage. So yes, horizontal, but if it's a horizontal branch, everywhere along that branch may have had rain landing on it and it may be soaking in. Gravity is pulling the water down. It will be pulling it down into the wood more likely than something that's vertical where there's less water incident on it in the first place and it will be running down the sides. Gravity's not pulling it into the wood. So the best firewood is going to be dead wood. It's going to be dry wood it's going to be vertically standing. So when we talk about dead, dry, standing, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at stuff that is vertical. Now, typically for most day-to-day -day purposes, you're gonna be looking at stuff that's re relatively small, relatively small diameter. You don't wanna be chopping great big trees down. When you get into more extreme environments where you maybe need more firewood in the Northern forest in winter, you might be taking down big, dead, standing, uh, pine trees and I'll link to a video of um, one of our trips up north where we were processing that type of wood for we did long long fires we did um, we were living out of a heated tent and so we were processing wood for our stove and I will link to that video you get some idea of the sort of diameters and that is dead standing wood as well but most of the time you're not going to be needing that amount of wood in any particular camping spot. You're going to need smaller stuff, you're going to need smaller stuff for boiling. You can split out a wrist thickness dead standing tree into maybe eight splints. You've got everything that you need for making feather sticks. You've got smaller fuel for boiling. Um, you can leave it in quarters or halves for slightly bigger wood for, for cooking for longer. 
Um, you've got every single size piece of fuel that you might need for a short to medium term camp in that size of firewood. So that's ideally what we're looking for. Hopefully that clarification helps, Craig. Thanks for those questions, Craig. I did say the first person that would send in an Instagram uh, video question would get a prize and would get a gift from me. And you sent in two, you were the first to send them in. Um, I want to encourage people to do things when I ask them to do it. So Craig, my gift to you is that we will arrange a day for you to come to the woods with me and we'll go out and we can record an, a, an episode of Aspore Kirtley while we're doing it. We're going to look at some skills that, uh, that you want to look at. We can look at some identification you want to look at and maybe we record, uh, take some photos for a Wild Wanderings blog while we're out as well and we can share with other people what we see. So we'll communicate privately to organise that. Craig, really appreciate you sending in the questions. We'll hook up at some time over the coming months, maybe even into the spring, at a good mutually convenient time and we'll go out and we'll do that. All right. Next question. Time management on trips. This is from Jeremy Whitmore via uh, email. And he says, Hi Paul, in the spirit of staying away from a kit question, I'd like to hear about the thing I struggle with the most, time management. Any time I'm camping, I feel like there's never enough time to deploy camp, collect water, work on my fire lighting skills, cook dinner and still have time to practice the skills I want to improve on. Can you give us some tips on what your routine is when setting up camp and how you get the most out of your camp trips? Well, um, there's a couple of things that I've, I've gleaned from that, Jeremy. Um, maybe you're first off maybe you just need to question are you expecting too much from yourself if you're consistently going out and struggling to do all of the things that you want to do maybe just pick one thing apart from the existing part of it just one thing you want to work on and i think that's a good separation to start off with if you're going to the woods to stay in the woods to live in the woods for a night or two nights or however long you're going for there are certain things you're going to have to do. You're going to have to eat, you're going to have to go to the toilet, you're going to have to source some firewood maybe, you're going to need some sort of um, shelter, your tent or tarp or tarp and hammock or whatever it is. So there's going to be some setup and pack down, there's going to be some sourcing of firewood and um, all of that's going to take a certain amount of time. The better you are at those things, the quicker you're going to be. So maybe they're the things that you need to practice first. If it takes you a long time to set up your camp, to find the right firewood, refer, refer, re, um, starting to rain, refer back to my previous question about dead standing wood. Um, if you can't identify the, the firewood that you need quickly, maybe that's a skill that you should be working on. You know, maybe rather than struggling with the basics and then trying to layer other stuff on top of it and not having the time, just work on those basics to start off with. Can you tie your tarp and hammock knots really, really quickly? Can you get a fire lit really, really quickly? Can you um, get up, get breakfast on, you know, get sorted for the day quickly in the morning? with a campfire. If you can't do those things quickly and efficiently, those are the things to work on. 
practice those fire lighting skills, practice those tarp and hammock knots so that you can do them you know, with your eyes closed in your sleep. Um, get your kit really organized so that you can deploy it quickly, you can pack it away quickly. Um, maybe even simplify your kit, maybe you're taking too much stuff with you, I, I don't know, but try and simplify and make efficient that basic stuff that you're always going to have to do and then once you've got that really quick and slick then you're going to have more time to practice other things. I would say try not to do too much. When you're learning stuff it takes much longer than it does when you become proficient. So you know for example just feather sticks. We talked about feather sticks before. If you're using feather sticks to light your fire, if, you're, if that's the method you're using and you're well practiced, you go and find a dead standing piece of wood, you chop it down, you saw it into the right sort of sections, you know the length you need, you split it, you carve your feather sticks quite quickly in real time, you're done in 20 minutes, put down a half, put down the feather sticks, light it with one match, away you go, you've got your other fuel, you've got your fire, you've made, a, you've made a pot hanger quickly, you've got your billy can over the fire, you've got your brew on, you've done it quickly, you're sort of good and going within an hour with everything sorted. If you're not good at feather sticks, it might take you all morning just to practice making a few good feather sticks. After you've taken a while to select a really good piece of material, you've split it down, you've struggled getting the curls and the knife angle right and then you, some of them are a bit dodgy, they don't really work, the necks are too thick, the curls burn off and char the stick but the rest doesn't burn, you, it takes a while. So don't expect to be doing these things as quickly as you will do ultimately, don't expect to be doing them as quickly as you might see me do them in videos or you might see other people do them in videos when they've practiced them a lot you need to build up to that real-time um, level of application. Um, another good way of getting your skills up the curve in terms of speed and efficiency is use them on a trip. If you're doing a canoeing trip or a hiking trip where you have to be going from A to B during the day, you can't be faffing around. You have to be up, sorted, breakfast, packed down, leave no trace, move on, navigation and whatnot during the day, find a camp spot, get set up, get the fire going, have your dinner, get some rest, move on the next day. It forces a discipline that maybe that doesn't exist when you've got more time. Parkinson's law, it's a classic maxim of time management. Work will expand to fill the time that's allocated to it. So maybe you're just being a little bit too expansive in that sense as well. So you've got these sort of double-edged sword of giving yourself a long list of things you want to practice when you do need time to practice skills to get good at them and get efficient but equally if you don't have um, some pressure when you're applying the skills you're always going to be a little bit slow with them so it's it, you, you've got to give yourself time to get up to speed but then when it comes to applying you've also almost got to put some time pressure on yourself once you've got the basic proficiency and that will allow more time for other things so hopefully that helps and to answer the other part of your question, I don't all have a standard way that I always do everything. It's almost like it's a modular system. It's like you've got jigsaw pieces, you know, fire lighting skills, camp setup skills, um, tarp setup skills, tarp knots, um, campcraft skills to allow you to create various pot hangers or ways of using stoves or cooking methodologies or recipes 
or whatever they are that allow you to, in this situation, to set a tarp up effectively, set your camp up, the rest of your camp up effectively, have a efficient fire lay for what you're trying to cook. Um, that comes from experience and you can fit them together in modular fashions, but just go to the same space, practice the basic skills, get them slick, and then fit in just one skill. Just say, I, this today I'm going to do this one skill. If this is all I get done today, if I get some really good feather sticks made today, then I'm happy with that. Or if I get a bow drill set made today, I'm happy with that. Or if I identify 10 trees that I've never identified before using the guidebook I've got with me, I'm happy with that. Rather than trying to do so much all at once, you will progress faster ultimately. I'm conscious that I've got a lot of sun on my face all of a sudden. That might be causing a bit of problems for the video camera. So apologies if I look really bright and somewhat overexposed at the moment there. The sun's come around the trees if you're watching this on video. If you're listening on a podcast, it makes no difference. All right, let's move on. We've got a lot to talk about. So we've done the Instagram questions. We've done the edible fungi. Um, one thing only for survival. And we've had a few questions about mi taking minimal things for survival situations, core kit. We've had questions in the past about specific survival scenarios or difficult situations in the outdoors. Um, we've had questions about the efficacy of bow drill, all sorts of things around difficult situations in the outdoors. Well, this is probably the most condensed one in terms of distilling down to one essence. And this is uh, from John Northgate. And he asks, hi, Paul, if you found yourself out in the wild, far from civilization, what is the one thing that will see you survive? Well, that's kind of a very open-ended question in one sense. Um, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think I would just wake up and find myself out in the wilds. I think I would be there for a reason. Um, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sort of taking the, the mickey there. What you choose to take with you is predicated on where you're going. What's more important in one environment is going to be less important in another environment sometimes. What's important in the jungle might be less important in the northern forest. What's important in the desert might be less important in the Arctic. Where you're going um, dictates what the most important piece of kit is. I'm assuming it's a question about kit, um, although it may not be necessarily just about kit. Um, I think... Um, you might be asking me to, to, to come up with something like a knife or a fire steel or, or something like that. But I think the most important thing to take with you, the one thing, is the right mindset. The right mindset will see you through situations. Um, not saying that equipment won't help. I'm not saying skills won't help. But people have got through horrendous situations through bloody-mindedness, being positive, breaking situations down into manageable steps, doing the next thing they need to do without being overwhelmed by the magnitude of their situation and getting through it step by step. So I would say the right mindset is at the top of the tree. Um, yes, equipment's a bonus. Yes, the more skill you've got is 
a bonus. Remember though, you need to have your skills tempered by experience. It's very often the case you see people practice various skills and then they, they get into a challenge situation. It could be one that's created for them as a challenge or a test as part of a training and they almost want to apply certain skills because they're good at them even though it might not necessarily be the most appropriate skill to be applying. It might not even be the, it might be the appropriate skill to be applying, but it might not be in the right order. They maybe should be prioritizing something else. So do be mindful of that when you're skilling up that you don't get, you know, you get too focused on friction fire or you get too focused on natural navigation. You need to have a good broad range of skills and make sure that you can apply them in a prioritized fashion. Top of the trees mindset, skills are important and then equipment is there one piece of equipment that is going to see you right in any situation you could argue it should always be a knife you could argue it should always be a compass it depends on the situation so i don't know if there's necessarily one piece of kit in a lot of situations a cutting tool will be very useful in a lot of situations um, a compass is going to be useful so I don't think necessarily there's one piece of kit. To broaden the answer to your question, what's the one thing that will see you survive in the modern day, in this day and age? Probably the one thing that's going to increase your chances of survival if we're talking about getting stuck far um, from help is for somebody to know where you were going. Let somebody know what your intended route was, where you intend to go, when you intend to be back, what to do if you aren't back and have somebody reliable left with that information. Because otherwise, even a, even a 10 mile walk, if you, do, if you walk off for 10 miles and then break your leg, even if somebody knows your starting point, if you think about the area they're going to have to search, yeah, it's about 314 square miles they're going to have to search based on you walking 10 miles in one day from a fixed starting point if they don't know what direction you set off in. Multiply that up by a number of days, it's a vast, vast area that somebody's going to have to search for you. So telling somebody where you started, what your intended route was, even if you wandered off that a little bit, that sort of corridor that you're traveling on, where you were intend to end up, and what to do if, if, they, uh, if they don't find you back safe and sound or you don't report yourself in, that's probably going to increase your chances of survival the most in the, the modern day and age because somebody's going to come looking for you, they're going to do an efficient search because they know where you are and just do a search on Google for lost hiker, particularly in North America, you will see umpteen um, situations where day hikers and multi-day hikers have gone out and they're rescued relatively quickly because somebody knew where they were starting and somebody knew roughly where they were going. The other thing that's going to give you a big advantage is that if, you, if you're in the middle of nowhere and you're lost or you're injured or you're stuck, if you know somebody's going to come looking for you, that gives you a big psychological boost as well. So, and again, going back to the beginning of the question, mindset is really important. Having positive psychology is really important. And knowing that somebody's going to be looking for you can only help. So I would say leave word is, if I had to choose one thing, one factor that you could turn the dial on in terms of getting you out of a difficult situation in a remote spot, is 
somebody knowing where you are and that they're going to come looking for you when you don't turn up at home. Hopefully that gives you a good, broad understanding of my thinking on that. All right, quick question. Another Instagram photo question. This is from Jim Underground. And he sends a picture. And for those of you that are listening on the podcast, it's a area of dry ground that's relatively bare earth. There is, there's some leaf litter, uh, dried leaves in there, but in the center of the photograph is a, a little sort of depression, dug scrape, and there is a sort of dark purpley black mass of what look like little cherry pips or olive stones and a lot of sort of black mulch all mixed in together. And basically it looks up like looks like sort of mashed up cherries. It looks like some sort of excrement. And the question is, um, Jim was out tracking deer in the woods and came across these, a dug scrape full of droppings, lots of bird cherry stones in it. I'm assuming it's a badger latrine, but I've never seen one before. Um, yes, Jim, that's exactly what that is. Um, it's a badger latrine and there may well have been other scrapes in the area. They often have multiple latrines in one little area. The whole area is the latrine. It's often on the boundary of their territory with another uh, set of badgers. It will be away from the set where they're living. And it's interesting to go and look because you can see what they're eating at the time of year. You can see how seasonal their diet is. Sometimes it'll be full of there'll be fur, sometimes there will be beetle casings, other times there will be seeds and uh, bits of grass and all sorts of stuff in there that you can see over the course. Sometimes it'll be really sloppy, other times it'll be hard, sometimes it'll be full of pips. Um, they are omnivores, they will eat what they can get hold of and this one has clearly been eating a lot of cherries. Good spot, thanks for sharing the photo. Right, um, another Instagram photo, the coming in thick and fast with the Instagram. This one is from Andrew Casey, and this is a question about um, processing oak bark. I think I mentioned a while ago that you could use the inner bark of some oak species for uh, tinder, for making bird's nest style tinder bundles. Yes, you can. And you're basically gonna scrape off the inner bark fibers and buff those up, dry them out, and then that's your, that's your tinder bundle. So Andrew's question is, um, what's the best way to process the inner bark of oak to use as tinder? I've had a look at trees that have been cut down in my local woods, which have areas of loose or damaged bark. I'm absolutely stumped as how it can be turned into tinder. And Andrew's put a photo on here of some of the bits of bark, which are still quite, um, integral they're still quite chunky um, they're not breaking down they're not rotting and I think that's probably the problem there Andrew that it's just not in the right condition you can see from some of the bits you've got there in your photograph that there are some areas where it's a bit fibrous but it needs to be breaking down and rotting down a bit so you can separate those fibers um, I'll post a photo up over the video of a photo that I took earlier in the summer it was on a course we're running, a woodcrafter course, which is our axe and campcraft course. And um, we were collecting some dead oak, some branches of oak that had come down that we were splitting out and using as firewood for doing some Dutch oven cooking, get really good embers from oak. 
and the bark of that, it was dead, it was a dead branch, it had been dead for a while, it was big, big and chunky, the bark came off of that quite nicely and the in, inner bark, because it had been dead for a while, it was all starting to decompose, the inner bark could be scraped off. Um, in the same way, if you've ever processed sweet chestnut bark for tinder, it needs to be in the right state of decomposition to be able to easily remove those inner bark fibers. And preferably it's gonna be a bit damp because they seem to come away more easily when, when it's damp than when it's dry. You need the oak bark to be in a similar condition to that to be able to remove those fibers. And they generally don't come off in as long a strips as the sweet chestnut does, but it's still gonna come off in a reasonable amount. And you can see that from, I'll put a photo up here and you can see that from this photograph from um, some that I collected back in, in August. So you're on the right track, Andrew, but you might just have to wait for those branches to decompose a bit longer. All right, what else haven't we touched on? Knots and lashings. This is quite a long question from Kevin Baldwin sent via the contact form on my blog. Kevin asks, um, having been involved in scouting for the majority of my years, I have seen many of what were once termed by Baden-Powell as scouting skills now being taught under the umbrella of bushcraft skills. I have no problem with this, good, um, as the end of the day, at the end of the day, these are just alternative labels for outdoor living skills. And I'd agree with you, Kevin, and if you look at the history of the term bushcraft and the people that are involved in bushcraft, if you look at people like Baden-Powell, if you look at um, some of the other scouts and people who fought in the Boer War, um, they had a lot in common in terms of the bushcraft skills and then they started to, to be disseminated out. People like um, Frederick Russell Burnham, who was a big influence on Baden-Powell, and then you, later on you had people like, people like Salou, um, all of these skills have been in that melting pot and a lot of that came out particularly from from the Boer War and Frederick Russell Burnham and Baden-Powell into um, the scouting books that they wrote and particularly then Scouting for Boys which became the bible of, of the scouting movement um, and yes a lot of those scouting skills were basically bushcraft skills and um, they used that term more interchangeably than, than maybe came um, maybe became popular for a while, but I agree, they are fundamental skills. And so, the rest of your question. Um, however, based on this premise, that they're just alternative labels, I often wonder why skills such as pioneering lashings rarely feature in bushcraft articles and courses. They are essential elements for building strength into constructions such as shelters, rafts, etc., and go hand in hand with cordage construction. Articles for hammock and guy line knots are routinely mentioned, but the basic square, diagonal, and shear lashings are rarely covered. The Morse Kahansky jam knot is a good example of the use of these knot types. I would be interested to know your views on whether these knotting types should feature more heavily in bushcraft basics. Regards, Kev. Um, yeah, I think they should. Um, to me, knots are a really important part of your outdoor skill set. They allow you to solve various problems, certainly in campcraft and pioneering skills, as you might call them in, in scouting. That ability to construct, whether it's a, a chair, a latrine, a bench, uh, a shelter, um, a cabin, 
a bridge, whatever it is that you're trying to construct, good repertoire of knots is really, really important. Um, and the more you do in the outdoors, you do build up a repertoire of knots. Um, whether you're mountaineering or canoeing, you're gonna build up some knots. And I think sometimes the problem with the bushcrafters is that they're very focused on lighting fires and using cutting tools. And you see a lot of that in articles and YouTube videos, um, but there isn't so much building of things. There isn't so much wider experience um, in terms of, you know, you only need to go canoeing and tie your painters on, lash some gear into your boat, learn some whitewater safety and rescue. You're going to start learning a lot about no, knots and lashings, building sailing rigs, all of those sorts of things. You will become a lot more familiar with knots and lashings. Go and do some basic climbing. You're going to learn more about knots and um, hitches and you know, you're going to learn clove hitches and Italian hitches and re-threaded figure of eights and thumb knots and all sorts of things just at the basic levels. Um, things like bowlins have fallen out of fashion, but you're going to learn some basic knots. But I, and I think one of the problems with, with the bushcrafters, particularly the amateurs, the people who are not professional outdoor instructors, is that they have a very narrow view of outdoor skills and they are not learning these other things. They're not making journeys. They're not um, traversing difficult terrain. They don't need to know those basic knots. So yes, they focus on the, 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 the guy line knots. They focus on things to set up their hammocks and the tarps, but there isn't that broadest perspective. And then I think the other issue in terms of the, going back to the lashings and constructions is that a lot of places where people camp it's hard for people to be making larger constructions. They may have permission to set up a tarp and a hammock you know, it's, it's not particularly damaging to hang a hammock, hammock with tapes between two trees for a night, but then if they're going to have to start cutting things down and constructing things and lashing them together, that's more impactful on the environment that they're in and perhaps they don't have the permission to do that. I also think that generally that skill set isn't as, as widely held as, um, as some of the other basic knots for tarps that we know about. But going back to your question, should it be in, included in basic bushcraft instruction. Yes, it should. Um, on our woodcrafter course, which I've already mentioned once in this in this session, um, we teach people lashings. We teach people ways of tying things together to make constructions, making sawing horses, um, making various things around camp and benches and stools and all sorts of things. We teach people methods of construction because they are important. Once you move beyond the lightweight backpack based um, tarp and hammock camping where you're moving on from day to day then you might be in a spot for longer you want to be able to create things you want to make wash stands you want to create shower setups you want to create um, group shelter areas or work areas where you can work under you want to create saw horses all of these things if you've got some basic lashings in your in your repertoire then you're going to be able to create them so I yes I absolutely think they are a core part of the skill set of bushcraft and probably should be taught more widely Um, ah, one more, lots of questions this week, trying to rack through quite a few. Okay, this is a question from Callum, and Callum asks, just wanted to drop you a quick line to say thank you very much for the great podcasts. You're very welcome, Callum. Um, a great source of information, which also acts as a very effective time compression machine on my long car journeys. 
My Ask Paul Kirtley question is, I've been searching around for some other bushcraft or wildlife related podcasts in a similar vein to yours, which I appreciate greatly. I was wondering what podcasts do you subscribe to and or do you have any recommendations for bushcraft, wildlife or general outdoors related podcasts that might be of interest to your listeners? Um, so there's two questions there really. What podcast do I subscribe to? Um, I don't subscribe to many, I have to say. Um, and the ones that I do, all of the all of the podcasts that I subscribe to don't really have any bearing on on bushcraft and survival and outdoor skills. Um, there's one general podcast that I listen to, which is uh, probably familiar to a lot of podcast listeners, and that's Tim Ferriss's podcast, which I'd recommend. There's some stuff in there which will be of interest to people who are interested in the broader um, topics that I talk about. Um, they will be interested, they cross over with some of the topics that I talk to guests on my Paul Kirtley podcast. Um, and if you're not familiar with my Paul Kirtley podcast, you should be. Um, great long format, long form interviews with some really interesting people that have got diverse experiences in the outdoors that you can draw a lot from. Um, I'll put a link at the top if you're on YouTube and if you're listening or if, uh, via podcast or you're already on my blog, there will be a link in the show notes. Go to paulkirtley.co.uk, episode 40. Find the show notes where it says links. There will be a link through to the Paul Kirtley podcast. Please subscribe to that as well. It really helps. Subscribe via your favorite podcast platform. And that is just an audio podcast. It's not a video. So you're going to have to subscribe via iTunes or the Apple Podcasting app or Stitcher. Or you can download the episodes directly from my blog as well. And if you want to know about the updates um, when, they, when they come out, because they are a little bit sporadic um, sometimes I get a few done in a month other times it can be a month um, or six weeks between each one depending on where I am and who I have conversations with um, you just get onto my mailing list my email list go to my blog sign up for my email updates when there's new information on my blog you will get those podcast updates as well um, so if you if you're interested if you've got a broad range of interests and you're interested in personal performance and those sorts of things then the tim ferris podcast might be interesting but that's the only one that's really got any great crossover in some of the episodes with some of the things that i talk about um, and it will be more the sort of physical training and ketogenic diets and those sorts of things that he talks about sometimes rather than the sort of entrepreneurial stuff that he talks about um there have been a few bushcraft sort of podcasts around but there are a few started around the same time as I started my podcast but there's nothing in the UK that seems to be running consistently at the moment um, a few have fallen by the wayside um, there are a few nature podcasts around you can listen to some of the radio 4 programs as podcasts you know um, those sorts of things are quite interesting sometimes but I don't subscribe to them generally so I'll, I'll open it up to the audience um, around the world do you listen to any nature podcasts and let's let's stick with nature because personally I find some of the bushcraft podcasts kind of go down the uh, the kind of kit route a little bit too much actually one that might be worth listening to for some of you is the sumo survival podcast um, those guys up in Scotland, um, they can be quite fun to listen to. They, con they do still put out a consistent um, podcast and I've been on their podcast, so that can be one to listen to. If you are listening in French, the Nature Aventure Civil um, podcast, 
that one, the album Cam's podcast, could be worth listening to as well. Um, but aside from that, are there any nature podcasts that you listen to? Any bushcraft or survival podcasts? I know there are quite a lot of prepping podcasts out there, but more bushcraft or survival podcasts that you listen to? Let us know in the comments, in the comments on YouTube or in the comments on my blog. Let me know what your recommendation would be um, in terms of uh, Callum wanting to add some more podcasts to his listening repertoire there. All right. That is all the questions for this episode. So thank you for those. Thanks again for the Instagram video questions. Thanks for all the varied questions that have come in. I know there's still a backlog. We will try and get to those in the coming weeks. I'm just thinking about where I'm going to be. I'm going to be around the, the UK a fair amount. I'm in the northeast now. Um, I've just been in Sussex for a bit. I'm in the northeast now. I'm on my way up to Scotland for a while. So we'll probably get some, hopefully, uh, we'll get some done in Scotland as well. And we'll be putting those out. And we, we, you never know, I might have a guest on a couple of those as well going forward. So keep your eye out for those. Keep the questions coming in. And in a few weeks time, I will be with my friend Andy, um, Andy Chatterton, and he is a stalker, a deer stalker. He's a firearms instructor. Um, I'll be staying with him um, in a few weeks time. And if you listen to my other podcast, the Paul Kirtley podcast, you may remember I did an interview with him last year. Um, I will be staying with him and if you send some questions in for me and Andy, so anything around deer, tracking deer, stalking deer, shooting, shooting in the UK, any of those sorts of things, um, send them in. Usual hashtag AspaulKirtley or send them in via SpeakPipe or send them in via contact on my blog. If we've got enough of those questions, we will do a... Um, special Aspel Kirtley with Andy as a guest in a few weeks time. So you've got a couple of weeks to send in your, your questions, start getting them in now, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to answer those on a forthcoming Aspel Kirtley. Let me know as well if you like the um, topic specific podcast. We did one around water last week. Um, this one's been a general one again. We'll do one around shooting and deer and stalking and stuff in a few weeks' time. Um, let me know if you'd like some more specific ones. I can suggest topics. You can send in questions. Um, that could be something that we can do just to mix this up a little bit as well as we go into the 40s, already into episode 40 now, and we're now in the 40s. And, you know, I'm 43. I feel like the 40s are a good decade to be in. So let's make all the 40s of the Aspel Kirtley episodes really good. So please keep sending your questions in, particularly the ones for Andy in a few weeks' time. And I will see you on the next episode of Aspel Kirtley. And if you're listening, I'll speak to you on the next episode of Aspel Kirtley. Take care.